Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Tabletop Cyberpunk. My name is John John the Wise. This is the podcast about Cyberpunk 2020, Red, and anything about the tabletop games made by Artel Sorian. And I am back at you guys, feeling a little bit dizzy, a little bit weird. Because if you haven't heard already, I am recovering from COVID-19. Yep. The uh, the one we shut down the whole world for, the thing that happened, yeah, it's real. It knocked on my door, and it's in my house. And, um, yeah, so I'm recovering from it. Uh, I had some bad days, but I'm doing well now, and uh, everything's good. So I'm good, family's good, we're all recovering, we're all feeling good. And, um, yeah, it's a little bit scary at first, obviously, because, you know, we're, it's it's the unknown but um yeah i'm doing fine i might sound a little weird but i'm doing okay uh but before we get into all that stuff make sure you guys join the discord community the link will be in the description and make sure you guys are subscribed to my youtube channel for more cyberpunk content john john the wise on youtube and i'm on all social media as well and that's pretty much it if you're listening to this right now i when will this be released? This will probably be released the same day I do the Cyberpunk panel. If not, um, it might be after, but I doubt it. I think I'll do it a little bit before. There, on Friday, September 25th, which is the day that I'm recording right now, this, uh, this little thingy, I'm going to be doing a Cyberpunk panel with Rob Mulligan from Cyberpunk Uncensored, and we're going to be doing it for, for Albacon 2020 the virtual Albacon, and we'll have with us Jay Gray, the brand ambassador from Martel Sorian Games, and we'll have James Hutt, a game designer. He's pretty much the, the rules lawyer for Artel Sorian. He cre- he's the mayor of Balancetown, as they say. And uh, yeah, he's, I'd love to have a chat with him. I'd love to have him on the podcast. So that's one of the things that, it's one of those gets that I want to get. So... If you guys want to tune into that, I'm sure the the VOD will be up. We'll be doing it live 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on uh, today, uh, Friday 25th. And um, sorry, guys, I'm recovering. So my head is like all over the place. But um, yeah, we'll be on doing that. So if you guys want to check it out, we'll be answering questions, talking about Red and doing stuff like that. So if you guys are interested and want to hear about Cyberpunk Red some more, then let us know, okay? Uh, what do we have for today? Today, at the end of the show, after this little segment, we have an interview with Chris Hawkabout, who is a game designer, a writer, and an artist, and a father, and a gamer, and all that stuff. But what, how he pertains to Cyberpunk, if you don't already know, he was employed by Artel Sorian or given the chance by Artel Sorian to do a bunch of artwork for them. He's done the cover of uh, Listen Up Primitive Screwheads. He's done Bozo artwork for the Core Rulebook. And number one over everything, this guy was one of two people to do uh, to start Interface Magazine. Him and Thaddeus. Uh, I forgot his last name. Sorry. Uh, him and Thaddeus got together and 
created Interface Magazine, and that's kind of like one of those holy grail items for cyberpunk collectors. It's a fan magazine that was officially licensed by Artel Sorian because Mike really liked his stuff. And it was just like a chance encounter kind of thing. I mean, we get into it in the interview. So if you guys want to hear about some cyberpunk history and hear about what it was like back in the day, and we just talk about gaming and stuff like that. We just had a really cool conversation. And he's a really nice guy. And it was an honor to to have him as my second guest. And we kind of go, I started something, a new segment in my interviews too, where I uh, do some like gaming ideas. We do like plot encounters and I asked him some stuff about, you know, what he'd do as a GM because he's a forever GM just like me. And uh, so it's, it's always fun talking to people that are in that scope. So stay tuned for that interview after this. But before we get into that, I have two things to talk about. Number one is my recovery from COVID. Number two is a war story for a lost episode. Excuse me. The last episode of The Wise Guys that we recorded, we were literally right at the end of the episode and my power went out and I lost it. So it's gone. And uh, I'll go over what happened and stuff like that. Um, and we'll, we'll move on from there. All right. So number one on the menu, COVID-19, it is real. Wear your masks, people. It was, uh, it's crazy. I went to a clinic because there was a scare that I might have it. Um, I gave a friend a ride and he's like, Hey, I got, I tested positive. So you should go check yourself. And I went to a clinic and then at night after the test, I tested negative. So I was like, okay, I don't have it. Next day, I start feeling terrible, and the day after that was worse, and the day after that was even worse than that, and I was bedridden, like, it was bad. It's nothing like I've ever felt before. I've had worse fevers, but this wasn't, it wasn't the fever that was the bad part, it was like the body aches and fatigue, and it just puts you out, like, you can't do anything, you're a zero, basically, and, uh, it's, I, I mean, I can't prove it, but I think I got it from the clinic that I literally went to to get it checked on. So it is what it is. I wasn't careful. I didn't, uh, I didn't sanitize my hands when I got out like an idiot. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't as careful as I could have been. Because, you know, it's, it's hard to be 100% all the time, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, it's hard to be 100% careful all the time. And, you know... One slip up is all it took, and that was it. The good news is I'm okay. My son's okay. My wife barely got affected by it, thankfully. Oh, man, I got emotional think about it because I didn't want her to go through the same things that I did. And she's not. She's recovering just fine. It barely even grazed her, her health. So, um, And my son is like largely not affected. I mean, if he is, we don't notice anything. He's the same old two-year-old self so thank god for that so yeah that's it that's my covid story and um i'm doing well thankfully i'm still able to keep going making content doing everything and we're still on this planet having a good time all right guys so be careful out there it's real wear a mask it's real man it it, i'm telling you if you if now you know somebody that that had it and i'm using my platform um, you know, some people even say like, hey, don't tell anybody. And 
it's like we there's you shouldn't be ashamed of getting sick okay there shouldn't be shame connected to being sick or anything like that this is something that happened it's out of my control and instead of hiding from it and hiding the fact that i have it and doing all that i'm letting people know that i had it and it's real so that maybe people will change their mind about it because it's it's that unknown thing that's out there right people are like is it even real i've never seen it i don't know anybody that has it and there's all kinds of conspiracy theories but it's real so and and the whole time i was really sick laying in bed i was thinking man if i was still smoking cigarettes would i still be alive if i had any kind of medical condition before this that like put me out would i still be around and those are the kind of things that really put life in perspective when you think about it so think about your loved ones and people out there that that can't fight okay all right so didn't mean to get so dismal and dark and uh, this next section should be a little bit more fun. Uh, I will preface this by saying, when we started recording this episode of The Wise Guys, um, I, I don't know, there was something about it, I just was, my head wasn't in the game. And I got a little bit, you know what happened was I got comfortable. I got comfortable thinking that I'm doing a good job, and I had prepared enough, and everything was good, and I prepared this big old warehouse fight where we had left off the the wise guys were about to start combat in this giant warehouse with so many bad guys right and i had plans for like um like stuff that's going on in the warehouse uh uh what do you call it what do you call it hazards hazards that are happening inside the warehouse boxes falling electrical arcs and and i had like uh if you roll a, a d6 and on a, on a 4 plus, this happens. I, I wrote all this stuff down. I didn't go over my notes. And I just went straight into the session. And I really did a disservice to my players. Because it got a little bit boring. You know, they told me that it, it was still fun. And they still had a good time. Sam Ectoplasm literally had 2 HP by the end of the fight and almost died and black adder almost died in his net run and it was just it was getting really dark really grim and if i lost one of my players that day it would have been a real shame because i did not give it my 100% and to lose one of your players when you don't give it your 100% is really fucked up if you think about it you know that we spent all this time they made this character we've gone this long and for me to just like phone it in and then oh oh you're dead oh well roll another character that that that's not how i fly right so i regardless the the combat the entire session was combat the entire session there was very little role play they discovered another ai inside one of the rooms and it is of one of the other people that was kidnapped, Elena Covey. And, uh, and this AI is operating a little bit differently. I don't want to give away any secrets or anything like that. But I wanted it to be known that there's something different about this one than the one that they saw in the lab outside of the storm. So they killed a bunch of corporates with the help of the booster gang that was in the area. And I'm telling you, I totally messed up the booster gang thing. At, some, at points, I skipped their turn. 
and the players were like, hey, you skipped them. Like, they, it happened like three times. They're like, dude, you skipped them. And I go, oh, shit. Because then the turn counter on roll 20 was going, was going haywire. And it just, it was a shit show, man. And then on top of that, literally like two hours and ten minutes, the session was about to be over. Like, we were about to wrap it up. I was about to say, all right, we'll see you guys next week. Uh, somebody a few miles away crashed into an electrical pole and power went out for our entire city area. So it was just completely out. I lost the file. It got corrupted. I had like a 3.9 gig video file that couldn't be opened. And I'm like, yep, that's it. The, it's gone. And honestly, it was a blessing in disguise because as I said, it was a terrible session. And I learned a big lesson and ate some humble pie because once you think that you're good enough and you don't need to prepare and you got everything locked down, that's when you're reminded that no, you need to you need to still put in the work. You need to respect your players, respect their time and respect that and and, and respect the fact that you're not that good. That's something that I've always learned in my life. You're not really that good. As much as people want to like give me compliments and stuff like that, I try not to let it go to my head because there's always room to learn. There's always room to get better. And there's always mistakes that are made. So if you don't recognize your mistakes and all you want to do is recognize the great things that you're doing, you're going to be leaving weaknesses in your game. And I know I'm talking about it like it's such a serious thing. You know, it's not. It's it's supposed to be just for fun. But I I kind of take pride in it. You know, I take pride in in crafting a great story. It this is how it goes. All right. So I created a story, and my players responded well to it. And then that's like the addiction. The addiction is like, oh, they like it. So now I have the responsibility to keep this going. And I kept it going. And they kept having fun. And they kept telling me, I can't wait to come back. And people that watch the the actual plays are like, oh man, this is so fun, and you guys are having such a great time, and, and I can't wait to see what happens with the story, and blah, blah, blah. So I'm in this position where I'm like, at first I had no expectations, because remember, like in my past episodes, I said I have zero expectations as a game master, because I don't want to get disappointed. I just create the adventure and however it plays out is however it plays out if everybody had fun then we succeeded i don't care if the npc that i made or i crafted for three days uh i don't care if he dies or they don't give a shit about him and they and they say yeah yeah whatever they don't even have a dialogue with him it doesn't bother me okay so i with that mentality i i go into every session so once the sessions were over and they kept telling me that this is great, this is awesome, thank you, we're having a great time, I slowly started losing that humbleness about me. I'm not saying I was cocky or anything, but definitely the night that we recorded, I had this air about me that I was like, yeah, no, I got this down, this is going to be a great session, man, they don't even know how awesome this is going to be. And I don't even need to look at my notes. I already know exactly what I'm going to do. Boy, was I wrong. Oh, boy, was I wrong. And uh, I apologized to my players. They obviously were like, dude, it's okay. Who cares? And um, they forgave me. And we continued to say, like, hey, they said, all right, do you want to, should we play it again? And there's nothing worse than playing that again. 
I mean, it's over, dude. We did it. The story's over. We can't go back and, and try to play this again. Knowing all the secrets and all the things that happen, all the surprises, they're out of the bag. And like, what? Now we're going to say, oh, put them back in the bag and pretend you're surprised again? No, there's no way. So basically, you guys didn't miss out on much anyway. It was just the one big giant combat. Yeah, like you would have been on the edge of your seat if I had done a better job because two of the players almost died. So in some sense, that was kind of a success because, you know, the players, I, I wanted the players to feel like, oh, this is a big battle and this could be dangerous. So, um, yeah, that was it. I mean, we, we had our session and it went and they said they still had a little bit of fun, but it wasn't the best session and I understood why it was my fault. So that's that. And next time, oh, next time. I have prepared, I mean, the kind of preparation I've put into this next session, I mean, I signed up for Roll20's uh, um, sub subscription package that gives you more, you know, gigs for, for assets and stuff like that. But on top of that, it gives you the ability to do dynamic lighting. And I've been messing around with Fog of War on Roll20. And in the past, I had not really used battle maps all that much. I didn't think they were that important. But there's something about Cyberpunk Red that really wants, like, it wants you to use a battle map. You don't need it. Obviously, you could do Theater of the Mind and stuff like that. But the way James Hutt put the rules together for combat, it with with line of sight and what you can see is what you can interact with, and and uh, and movement and and the way things work, it just it feels so much better on a map. Because basically we're playing a skirmish game when we get into combat. It's, it's really a lot like Warhammer or Necromunda or any of those skirmish games like Battletech and stuff like that. It, it's, it's very reminiscent of that. So you want a map, you want visuals, and you want something to look at to help you. So I did that, and then I decided, well, it would be cool if I could hide certain parts of the map so the players will have to decide what they want to do, how they want to get there, because they want to go there. They, they see the fog of war, and they're like, okay, we got to see what the hell's going on in there, because I want to know. It's a, it's a curiosity factor, right? So putting fog of war on certain areas also leaves them with this sense of, like, we don't know what's around that corner. We got to be careful, and we got to case this whole thing out. And that's exactly what they did the session before. Um, the one we just had they got on the roof and they said can we look through any windows and I said yeah there's some windows on the roof and I showed them a little bit of the inside with it and blah 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 so they uh they they really had a good time with that so I wanted to give dynamic lighting a chance just to see what it was like and I started fiddling with it and I realized oh my god this is actually this is like end game end game preparation kind of stuff this is like the uh, elite game master kind of stuff because you can kind of how can i explain it so you know how video games they they do things that tabletop role-playing just can't do there's certain things that video games can do that role-playing games that with dice and paper and pen and stuff that they just cannot duplicate as much as they try to and it's the other way around, too. Uh, the reverse is also true. But dynamic lighting is one of those things that 
does something well enough that it's close enough to video games that it it adds a new experience and i'm hoping that i did a good well enough job and the players like it enough because they're going to go to an area that has dynamic lighting and there's going to be places where they're not going to be able to see and there's going to be places where they will be able to see they might have to split up and and keep a lookout and and look in certain directions and this and that you know what i mean so so I'm excited. I'm excited to actually play. And uh, right now my head is still swimming from recovering from COVID and I'm really dizzy. So it'll be really tough for me to run a game. But um, as soon as I'm recovered, man, I cannot wait. I cannot wait to get them to try this dynamic lighting stuff. So I'm really excited about it. And I'm excited to show you guys as well. So I hope you guys enjoy that. And that's pretty much it. Um, yeah, so power went out, lost that episode, no big deal, it was going to be a bad one anyway, I promise you, and I've learned from my mistakes, and I've prepared even better, and I'm actually really excited to see what we're, what we're going to go through next with this campaign, and uh, it's coming to a conclusion soon, this next area is not the complete conclusion, but uh, it's getting close, it's getting real close, so... It's going to be a lot of fun, and I can't wait to take the wise guys to another part of the cyberpunk world, and we'll have some fun with that. All right, so let's go straight into my interview with Chris Hawkabout, and I hope you guys really enjoy it. I had such a great time talking to him, and we'll see you guys on the next one, all right? See you later. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I have with me Chris Hawkabout, game designer, father, gamer, game master, all the all of the above. But you guys <laughs> might know him from some of the amazing artwork he's done in the cyberpunk universe for the various cyberpunk rule books, which we'll get into. And you might also know him by the holy grail of all cyberpunk collectors the interface magazines as he is the founder co-founder co-creator uh it was his idea okay so he had help but it was his idea and mm -hmm. uh we're here uh chris thank you so much for joining me uh thanks for thanks for having me on john yeah you got it man uh we've been planning this for a little while i heard you on uh cyberpunk uncensored with rob and i was like oh my god yes i want to talk to this guy because i have so many questions i just want to know what was going on because you guys were a part of that twilight period of cyberpunk where the focus was nowhere near what it is now on on the game and the genre and everything that came out of what you guys did was purely out of just the fun of it for the love of cyberpunk and for the love of the game. So yeah. um, I, I would love to hear everything about it. But first, let's, uh, let's hear a little bit about you and what you're doing and, and then go into how you are connected to Artel Sorian. Um, well, I uh, got connected with uh, Artel Sorian just through a chance encounter, I was um, uh, a big cyberpunk player. Started with the black box and and um, 
started doing a campaign because I was one of those guys that was like, you know, uh, hey, Chris, run this game for us. And like, yeah. So uh, uh, kind of like Phil McCracken, I've, I've, I've uh, game mastered way more cyberpunk. Yeah, than I've ever I know played. exactly how that feels. I've been more a game master than a player all my life. Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, and I wrote some rules and some new tech and stuff and put together this interface magazine just for my, for my gaming group in the back of our local game store in Alameda, California. And um, who walks into the back room, but Mike Pondsmith and Derek Quinton are. And um, I knew Mike uh, because we had friends in common. We were kind of part of the anime and con- game convention scene in the Bay area. And that, and that, at that time, and we had some, some mutual friends um, some of whom did some of the, some artwork for other Artel Serian products. But so I knew exactly who he was when he walked through the door and I just like pushed it under his nose and, um, and showed him also the, all of the artwork I've been doing. And pretty much he left that day. Um, or I, uh, knowing that I was going to like do some artwork for him and that he wanted to have interface magazine sort of like as part of the, the role, uh, line of cyberpunk products yeah and um and yeah i didn't do it alone like i had a uh a, a, a close friend and mentor at thaddeus house who uh was uh is older than me at that and was there at that time and and i was just a crazy kid with a lot of ideas and and thaddeus was the one who could actually bring some stability and some structure and some organization huh. and make sure that it, you know that it didn't completely run off the rails <laughs> it's always yeah. good to have one of those in your back pocket Oh yeah, yeah, um, and definitely wouldn't have, wouldn't have gone anywhere uh, without without Thaddeus sort of guiding it. I was I was the creative sort of like the creative helm, and, and um, uh, Thaddeus just just ran kind of made made it work overall. And if you guys are wondering what kind of artwork uh, he's done in some of your favorite books, check out the cover of "Listen Up, You Primitive Screwheads." He's done that. <laughs> uh-huh. The, and if you've seen that bozo, the artwork of the bozos in the core rule book, and you're like, man, these guys look mean and nasty, that's him too. So, I mean, you have your hand in some of the best parts of my memories with Cyberpunk, because those are those images and those things, when you look at them, they really said something to me. Especially the uh, Primitive Screwheads cover. Yeah. I mean, it's it, that... That cybered up psycho smashing the player's head in his hands, his nose is bleeding, but he's got a smile on his face. I mean, yeah. I mean, dude, that's exactly what cy- cyberpunk. It's like it's in your face, it's kicking your ass, your nose is bleeding, but you love it, and you're an idiot. So shut up. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love it, man. So, um, yeah. what what other uh, artwork have you done other than those two? Uh. Well, I think uh, um, uh, I did, you know, I did quite a bit of artwork for the second edition for the 2020 book. Um, I did a lot of artwork for the Tales from the Forlorn Hope um, uh, adventure series, the um, Land of the Free campaign. Um, some of my favorite pieces I did for the Euro Tour uh, adventure. Uh, but I think the, the first piece of artwork I did was, was some pieces for the, the Near Orbit supplement for first edition cyberpunk not the stuff i'm proudest of because it was you know still pretty rough and learning um doing artwork for cyberpunk gave me an opportunity to really kind of get a lot of practice in and develop my skills and and i was always thankful to mike and 
and uh, Lisa for that. Um, so I would say, like, if you were to look at the, the kind of like the peak work I did was was definitely in Land of the Free, Euro Tour, and I did uh, one piece I was really proud of in uh, Cyber Generation, kind of a splash page with a bunch of um, cyber Cyber Generation uh, nanite and powered. Uh, uh, protagonists beating on some corporate security. I think you're selling yourself a little too short because Mike saw something in you, Chris, and he put you <coughs> all over the place. And not only can you draw, but you can write, man. I mean, the interface magazines, some of those custom rules like the Cthulhu stuff that you guys did. And, yeah. you know, it's it's fun. It's stuff that nobody was doing at the time. It was definitely ahead of its time. Oh, thanks. Yeah, the Cthulhu Punk stuff, that was... Uh... Uh, I in particular was a huge, huge uh, um, Call of Cthulhu fan and player um, and a big Unspeakable Oath fan. Um, I think the stuff that the that uh, Pagan Press did. And of course, they were the people who went on and later did you know Delta Green, which is probably the most amazing Call of Cthulhu setting you can get. Um, and, uh, and we always had the idea of a Call, call through the Cyberpunk one crossover just always made sense. And, that, and so we reached out to the guys on Unspeakable Oath, which was John Tynes and Dennis Dittler, and um, worked with them. And uh, came out with what I think is my favorite issue of, of the, um, the run of um, Interface Magazine, was our, our uh, Cyber Cthulhu or Dark, Dark Times crossover. Ah, uh, okay. What we called it, yeah. Yeah, I feel like uh, there's a huge overlap with uh, Lovecraft, Mythos, Cyberpunk, and um, and Warhammer. That entire there's something about the grim, dark life sucks. You're not really gonna sure. win. You're not, you're not the you're not gonna be better. You're just trying to survive. There's something about that that we all love, and there's so much yeah. overlap, and they just work with each other so well. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean. Um... Uh, there was a game called Dark Conspiracy that was like Cyber Cthulhu and and uh, GURPS released a Cyber Cthulhu supplement. Um, but I think we were the first. I think we we actually uh, got got our stuff out uh, before them. Yeah. So. Well, let's take a step back because I'm interested to hear your story, like your origin story, just like any superhero. What got you into tabletop gaming? What was the first? What, did somebody just throw a, a, a game in front of you and say, "Hey, come play this," or, or how did it go down? Yeah, well, I mean, it was it was like a birthday party in, in 1980, and and uh, played D and D for the first time, and my first character died. Yeah, first character didn't even have a na- didn't even have a name because the idea of naming something was just like. I was even so new. Oh, that yeah. That whole idea. That, that was the days and, where you um, would just roll up everything, right? You rolled up your stats yeah. and everything. Well, yeah. Well, you just kind of like, okay, this is my first character. Is is This is kind of like Monopoly, but not. <laughs> and uh, uh, and that character died, but I was hooked. And I was pretty quiet, withdrawn, kind of weird kid. And... Um, uh, and Tabletop role playing uh, really became a, a form of expression and a way for me to to like like communicate. Really, like it really opened me up and um, got me, taught me how to talk to people and wow, that's awesome. Be comfortable spe- speaking in front of people and because uh, I was I was such a shy kid 
and um, uh, and it just kind of uh, it just became that became my thing. Like, uh, and this is during drew... that satanic panic time too. Right? Oh yeah, I even yeah, I even lost a friend oh. to the satanic panic. It's like my mom, my one of my close friends, Jehovah's Witness mom. I guess finally got the memo and realized that I was turning her, I was condemning her son's soul to hell. And so she basically like flipped on me Ugh. 180. I was persona non grata in, in one day. It's such a shame and, that um, something so positive in your life was seen with a, literally the evilest thing out there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, there's a, you know, there's a certain set in our populace who looks for evil in all the wrong places. But, um, that was uh, role playing games in general. Just became the engine of my creativity, and um, uh, and it, it it wound up getting me a job in the game in the video game industry. And um, nice. Uh, and but I've always been passionate about tabletop. I've never stopped playing like uh, since since I started in 1980. I've always been there's oh, never been a time I haven't been running or playing in a game. Or haven't been drawing or writing about it, and um, uh, like even in the video game industry, it's sort of something that I'm I'm kind of known for. Like companies I work for, I'm like the RPG guy. Oh, you're the you're the resident game master. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I mean, I'd expect that with how much passion you have in in writing, and you, I mean, just wanting to make Interface Magazine and wanting to mm -hmm. write for Talsorian and do art and all those things. That doesn't just come out of somebody trying to make a buck. That's no. all purely, <laughs> purely out of love. Yeah, if I didn't have tabletop role playing or like game design as a career, I don't know what I'd do. I'm pretty useless otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I doubt that. I think there's like one of those things that like alternate life where y your energy would have gone some other way. But I think this is the most fun. Yeah. Right. Yeah, probably. Uh, probably better for the world. That, I, that there was that to kind of like suck up my, my creative energy. I'd have to yeah. agree. Well, that goes straight <laughs> into my uh, next question was uh, you answered it pretty much by saying that tabletop gaming was your primary desire for writing. But what I want to know, why, why was just playing the game not enough for you? Why did you have to make your own rules and charts and tables and artwork and, and all the things that you had to do? Why was it not just enough just to play the game? I guess just because playing the game just would trigger the creative response in my brain, and my brain would just start filling up with ideas, and I just had to get them out. Now, if I had an idea for a game or a rule or, or a monster, like I had to, I had to exercise it out of my head and uh, get it out there. And also, um, just a, a, a same motivation any creative individual. A creative individual has to do anything. It's just uh, getting it out, getting it in front of people, letting other people experience it as well. Um, and that's a great thing about tabletop is um, I can make something that it can be enjoyed by people I'll never meet that are thousands of miles away from me um, and who are removed from my from the time when I created it by years or more. And, um, and I think that's amazing. I think that's like, uh, in a way, that's why I'm so proud uh, for and so happy for Mike announcement uh, that that 2077 happened. I really feel it like it's it's bringing him the kind of attention and and uh, recognition that that he's been due. 
or, you know, in essence, um, all of us within the tabletop community who know Mike and have known his work, uh, everyone is now finally getting to see what a brilliant guy he is. Yeah, nobody has anything negative ever to say about Mike or Talsorian or anybody that's ever worked with them in the past and no longer works with them has never said a single negative thing about working with them. And that kind of reputation, it's not there for, you know, no reason. Yeah, I I owe I owe Mike a lot. He, he uh, uh, really gave me a great platform to practice my 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 skills and and um, uh, develop creatively. Took a big chance on me with Interface, and uh, I wouldn't be where I am really. I don't think uh, without. He has good instincts, man, even with uh, with the new stuff that he's going with. Because I talked to Jay Gray, their brand ambassador, and uh, I uh-huh. asked him about, you know, what's going on with the licensing now. And he said, in the past, we kind of gave away the license uh, to, not gave away, but we handed it out a little more liberally to certain people. And they were not unhappy with any of the work or anything like that, but they're playing a little bit closer this time to the vest. Yeah. And even in that sense, the people that they've given the license out to, I mean, have you seen the minis from Monster Fight Club? They look great. I mean, yeah. it's a home run. Those guys are a home run. Everything about that company yeah. is a home run. I've talked to them personally. They're they're just like yeah. us, you know? And, you know, another thing that people won't, don't realize, a lot of people don't realize, is, like, Mike Ponsmith was clued into, was into steampunk, like, a decade and a half for you, you before people started like gluing sprockets to their top hats and going to conventions with monocles on. Because you know, Mike Mike wrote Castle Falkenstein, yep, which was uh, this amazingly beautiful, uh, diceless uh, steampunk RPG. Which I'm hoping maybe he'll he'll think they're they'll do release another edition of it because that that too. Amazing! Some of those beautiful artwork released ever like released in tabletop RPG by Bill Eakin. It's I agree. Amazingly beautiful. I agree. I love yeah. that. I love that like sepia tone kind of yeah. artwork. It, it gives it this really magical world flavor. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have all kind. And I mean, he was on top of it even with the anime stuff. That it's all like oh, yeah. cliche tropes now. But back then. Mm-hmm. It was groundbreaking ideas that people were just America was not ready for that mm-hmm. kind of stuff at the time, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's amazing, and um, you're right about the whole gaming thing, how it's connected people. And I remember the first time I played, I had not, I knew nothing about it, and I'd, I'd suppressed all my nerd desires because I wanted to fit in with people at school. Yeah. So finally one day i was like you know why am i doing this i mm-hmm. i'm hiding all the things that i like and i yeah. re- i for- forever regret it because i could have made so many friends and and i could have been gaming way before the early 2000s you know what i mean yeah so uh, that that's understandable though i mean social pressure to to fit in is really really powerful and um, I think I was really, really bad at fitting in. I was like super inept at, at trying to fit in. And I got to a point where I'm like, you know, fuck it. Um, I, I'm, I'm tired of trying to be what I think those people want me to be in order for them to 
talk to me yeah. and um i don't care if i don't have friends in my school because i went to the game store and all my friends were the friends i played with at the game store and they were consequently you know primarily adults yeah. so uh that became once i graduated high school they were they were my circle of friends uh close circle of friends for many years and and still are to this day yeah i mean my buddy that got me into gaming he was always the outsider in school and he knew it he has asperger's and um everyone was always making fun of him and telling me you know why are you hanging out with him and this and that and this guy ended up still to this day being my only best friend that's never screwed me over has only brought positivity into my life and has gotten me into cyberpunk he's the one that got me into cyberpunk See, great. Yeah, I had a friend who got me into cyberpunk, and unfortunately, he's not with us anymore. But oh, I'll never forget the day he. I see he sat down with me, and he pushed the black box under my nose. And said, "Dude, check this out." Yeah, I mean, yeah, that I've seen that black box. It's sick. <laughs> so, but I mean, I remember my friend. He introduced me to the game. I had no preconceived notion. I I said, "Hey, what's this D and D stuff?" And he came over to my house. He, he said, "Come over to my house." He introduced me to cyberpunk and then i decided you know what i want to run my own cyberpunk game so he said here's the book and you can be the game master next time okay so i started reading the book and i'm like hey wait a minute this is different than what we did in your game and it says this but you did that and he said oh yeah i changed all that and then <laughs> and then my mind exploded i was like oh my god you could just change it you could just do whatever you want uh-huh. And that's and I, I ever since then uh, that was like sparked all my creativity. It might even be the genesis of all the creativity in my life. Was and the idea that you don't have to do whatever's in the book, you can just do whatever's yeah. in your mind. Yeah, that's like the that's the power of of role-playing games, man. Yes. It's like um uh uh yeah. Deep love. <laughs> exactly. So what do you think you guys back in the day were trying to capture with Cyberpunk and what did you see in it? What was it that that sparked joy, as Mary Kondo would say, out of that game when you saw it? Because there's so many other games out at that time and so many other ways to entertain yourself with video games and, and it was kind of like the rise with all that technology. Why was rolling dice with your buddies and pretending to be other people in a cyberpunk world so enticing to you? Well, I think, uh, you know, the, if you think about the, the big games that were popular at the time cyberpunk came out, which was probably D&D, of course, D&D, Call of Cthulhu, Champions, um, were, were probably... Um, Traveler, maybe? Probably the big... Traveler, maybe a little bit, but mm-hmm. um, you know the er, typical paradigm was the the hero story. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, all these games, you know, even Call of Cthulhu, were where you know you're a generally just a normal person uh, with this impossible task. Um, D unless you're playing an evil campaign or our Munchkins um, champions, of course, obviously, um, you're heroes. You know you you're doing heroic things and um there was a game where good and good and bad was was blurred the lines between good and evil were blurred 
where uh, survival, just simple survival, that the world literally was out to get you, um, and that that was a driving force in sort of like a, the, your your character's experience. And overall, I think just the you know Mike and his generation being a bit more further ahead than where I was, probably a bit more politically aware. But of course, when uh, when you know my my generation, Generation X, also were coming up and kind of starting to feel a general cynicism towards the established institutions and and, yeah. and the government and in particular corporations and and um, you know we were i think kind of experiencing a certain level of of cynicism with the idea itself of quote unquote heroes and, and wanted to play something that was a bit darker a bit raw when um um and also i mean let's face it like cybernetics and and cool weapons are fun yeah and no no other game out there uh really let you just pack on that kind of style combined with utility and stopping power and, and it just made you feel powerful you know yeah um, i mean maybe champions could accomplish that but that only as a special effect it's like i you know but cyberpunk that that's that's what it was all about and um you know because in a sense it's like starting your character character starts as like you know uh, uh unadulterated unless you buy cyberpunk cyberware at the start and just playing that character over the course of a year-long campaign and you see where that character has ended up you know at the end of that year as opposed to where they started and you know it's not like i'm just a 10th level fighter now and i have cool armor it's like oh yeah i got orbital crystal cyber limbs and like running gear cyber legs and you know yep um and, uh, and it, so it was literally cool. Mike knew that this stuff felt cool. It felt good. And um, unlike anything else that was out there at the time. Yeah, and, I think, so, yeah. I that, think what that they, and Blade Runner, man. Oh I yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's so many influences at the time. Gibson as well with Neuromancer and, yeah. And so many things going on. It feels it was kind of like what is it a collective subconscious or sure kind of thing. Uh, Gibson same same you know roughly the same age as, as Mike and um, uh, those are you know that it was right around that time when when uh, Neuromancer and Bruce Sterling's uh, Islands in the Net and and because um, Matrix and and Rudy Rucker wetware and software yeah. and and. All those books were landing around the same time, too. What I really loved about Cyberpunk was when you were done making your character, when the life path was done, and we just took a look at it without knowing anything about the campaign or what plot points we were going through. We already had a story there. We had, mm -hmm. we had family, we had enemies, we had um, allies, and the, the cyberware that we had on wasn't just for killing people it was also to show the people on the streets that this is what we got and this is my style and 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 trying to fit in in the streets and yeah. earning a reputation and these are all things that you try to do in life anyway you know whether you're mm -hmm. working a job or or trying to fit in with a group of people 
but totally. you can you can just totally go through this this world and make it your own and mm-hmm. and that's what i really loved about it i really love the realism too and the fact that you could literally just die on a whim and <laughs> because of that it everything changed in the game it was more important mm-hmm. to figure out why you needed to get to the place you needed to get to who was going to be there how many of them are going to be there do you have friends with you i mean all these things are in the back of your head that a random D&D adventurer would just be like, all right, I got my fireball and my plus two sword. Bring it on, yeah. baby. You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like, uh, you know, if there was any melding of the character to the world, it was, it was only on the game, on the, on the DM to, to, to make that happen. And with cyberpunk, you know, it was a game where, where you couldn't make a character that wasn't connected to the world that wasn't derived yeah. from that world. Um, and that was something special, and also something that I was influenced by and carried forward in um, into uh, the design uh, the design of my own uh, tabletop RPG as well, because um, I like light paths. And, yeah, uh, I love it too. Yeah. Kind of, yeah, yeah. I I would say the one thing that I learned about Cyberpunk is you need friends because <laughs> oh for sure if you're the loser if you're the loner badass that doesn't talk to anybody and doesn't make friends and squints with the cigarette in his mouth you're gonna die because you have no backup you have nobody to take care of you so you have to check your ego at the door many times while you're playing Mm -hmm. and that's what i love about it that humble pie that everybody has to eat when they're playing yeah and the the idea of uh the, the the kind of um I don't know what you'd call it, uh, clades or factions or, or gangs or uh, found families. But that was always sort of a part to me of, of, of cyberpunk, just in the sense of a reflection of how shattered societies were in, in, in 2020 America and in, in the cyberpunk setting. Yeah. And that, as you say, if you don't have backup, if you don't have friends, no, you're, you're, you're dead meat. You're not, you're not going to last. No, you're not going to last. Um, okay, let's shift gears real quick to ask, do you ever think that interface magazines will be reprinted somehow, some way? Uh, there was, uh, uh, a rumor, um, that we might reprint the, col- uh, all of the, the, ma- the issues together into a single collection. Um, but that was a rumor I heard along, uh, like maybe a year and a half ago and, and haven't heard anything about it since. Um, mm. uh, what can I do <laughs> to, help, <laughs> to help make that a reality? Selfishly, I just want a, a, the, all the interface magazines in like a beautiful volume, hardback volume or something. Yeah. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, um, it would be amazing. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll, now I think, I mean, I'm I'm still very close friends with Thaddeus House, and um, and by the way, if you want to see what he's doing, you can just search Eben Storm, or Eben Storm Media. He's also uh, one of Quora.com's top answer people. He's the Ask Me guy. He uh, can pretty much go do deep dives on any kind of like fantasy and speculative fiction topic you ask him about. But um, oh, really? Um, and so I don't think it would be too difficult to get Thaddeus and I to to um, our heads together and see what we could do um 
and because I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's you know, uh, blessedly the the property Cyberpunk is getting um, you know a nice little re- renaissance, and and um, and I would be happy to to see interface reprinted simply just to kind of do what it can to um, throw that much more content into the Cyberpunk bucket for new new and old fans to 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 enjoy. That would be awesome because I'm not sure if you're familiar with Talsorian is doing, but they're they're taking each uh, of their old books and scanning them and doing a really good job because I have some of these print on demand books that they have. I have like mm-hmm. Wildside and uh, Rache Bartmoss's uh, Guide to the Net or not Guide Brainware Blowout and some <coughs> other ones that I got from uh, online and these are reprints that they scan. And you could never really tell. There's a few pages where maybe there's like a little bit of fuzziness in the text, but uh, just in general, this looks like I got it off a shelf in 1993 or or whatever. Nice. And I was wondering if uh, I mean, obviously, I'm I don't know how expensive it is. I don't know, you know, I don't know any of that. But would you consider doing something like that, like a print-on-demand kind of thing, maybe in conjunction with Talsorian? Yeah, I think that's something definitely worth talking about. Um, you know, one thing I'd like to do, uh, I slagged Richard Stanley's film uh, uh, Hardware in, uh, in my review. Um, and I always feel bad for that. And uh, if there's anything I, I would like, I would love to do is, is go back and watch that movie over again and uh, give it a, give it a, a fair chance. Um, yeah. Maybe that'll the the uh, uh, I'll include that with a reprint of of uh, Interface magazine. <laughs> Ooh, all right, you heard it here, folks. <laughs> well, I, I'm just putting it out there in the universe. You know, you gotta. It has to be said so people know. And I know that people out in Talsorian sometimes might listen to my podcast. So you know and i i don't know if you are connected with jay gray but maybe you guys can connect as well and talk about it and see what can happen he had nice sure. things to say about you and and your artwork and your work and everything uh yeah he and i exchanged a few words uh, uh but i don't know him very well but he seems like a cool guy and um if the interest is there i'm sure the motivation will follow close behind it yeah no i mean he is a great guy as you have said and uh so yeah that's exciting i hope that it it comes to fruition because <laughs> i really yeah. want those interface magazines the the covers alone are so nice on on some of those uh i mean all of them but just the covers on those magazines did you do all of them no no i did uh, uh i think i did the the cover on the, on the second okay issue um uh but the other yeah the other covers um uh in particular a couple of them like issue uh three and four um were done by this artist uh, mike ebert who also did uh, a lot of the art for um artel Sorain's dream park rpgs oh um, yeah yeah i remember and, those yeah and he actually got me my job at uh, lucasarts which which essentially was the beginning of my career in the video game industry oh wow that's so cool how everything's so connected yeah it's a small industry in fact, a lot of the artists that artists were employed uh, later uh, were co-workers of mine at LucasArts. Um, Harrison Fong, who did a lot of um, artwork, particularly in the early years at, at, for Artel Sorian, 
um, did artwork for Mechton and Cyberpunk. Uh, Bill Eakin, who did uh, the beautifully uh, painted covers for the Castle Falkenstein RPG and its supplements. Um, oh my and God. Mike Huber and myself. Can you help me locate a print of the uh, the Chrome Girl? From Chromebook Two, the the one where she's completely chromed out and has the pink. yeah, that's that's also Mike Ebert, yeah. Oh man, I need that as a poster. It's my favorite piece of artwork <laughs> with sight because it 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 captures everything. It's like boom in your face, like what the hell's going on? No, this is fashion. Uh, no, this is cyberpunk. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know. Yep. I love it. Oh yeah. Do you know if that exists somewhere? The print? I mean, I'm I don't sure know, Mike but I has do it. know Mike was really. Pr- I, I know uh, the artist Mike Ebert was really proud of it. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I remember when he painted it. It's easily my favorite of all of them, and I, I mean, I love a lot of them. The stuff that you've done with Primitive Screwhead, the cover of the 2020 Core Rulebook, I think it's it captures Cyberpunk perfectly as well. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's talk about. Uh, what do you think people want in a game or system when they're playing tabletop RPGs? What do you think they're looking for? Uh, because you you wrote custom rules and and you did stuff like that because you felt the creativity was there. It, it had there was a spark. So what did you think people wanted to see and hear and read? Um, well, at the time, um. It was it was just stuff. It was stuff, stuff, and more stuff. Yeah. Like Cyberpunk was a game based around the acquisition of cool stuff, and or at least part of it. And and so there was never too many. You could never have too many weapons. You could never have too many pieces of cyber gear. Um, and uh, so just wanting to kind of uh, provide that, and in, in, in a sense, you know, these a lot of these ideas were. You know, came from our out of uh, uh, ideas for our own games. You know, and and just wanting to add uh, more things to our own games uh, because the pace of content releases for the RPG just was not fast enough to satisfy uh, just our our desire, our lust for more content. Mm. And um, but today, I think uh, it's actually a, a frictionless experience, and by that I mean. Uh, uh, being able to play the game with as little referencing to rules or mechanics as possible. Yeah, and um, yeah, I think you're right. I think um, I think people just want to be able to play without having to have any idea about reading any rule book or anything like that. Yeah. They just want to get into the game. Yeah. And uh, and just agency, which is being able to do cool shit. And um, Cyberpunk really excels at that. I always thought that it was the way. Uh, Mike set up the 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 damage system in 2020. Like put it right on the sheet, like you know, um, and uh, and you know the idea of stat plus uh, skill plus die roll, which is so straightforward. And again, it was just right on the sheet. You didn't really need to look up anything. Yeah, and uh, um, and you know, my my one of my favorite games that I play a lot uh, right now um, unfortunately does still require like an inordinate amount of time looking up you know specific rule number rule modifiers and, and stuff like that and mm. and um, I mean I love the game despite that but overall 
just getting to a point where you can just um, role play what you want to do, um, uh, settle conflict with dice rolls that are easily translatable into cinematic action, and just play with your friends. Um, that's the that's the goal, and I think that's you know mm. I think Cyberpunk does that really well. Have you taken a look at the uh, new stuff they're doing with Cyberpunk? Have you checked out the Jumpstart kit? Yeah, actually, my my son wanted it, wanted to. Um, he thinks Cyberpunk is cool, and uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's kind of hard. So, like, yeah, we're living in it, son, uh, except for the Cyberland. <laughs> um, uh, and but uh, so he's he's pretty excited. I'm going to run um, the uh, apartment building. Uh, venture out of the box and and use that as a jump starter for a campaign but yeah no he's into it uh, he, and he's a, a big tabletop gaming kid too um, i mean you gotta be right i'm hoping that my son after watching me paint little spacemen uh with my warhammer guys and uh, watching dad play with his buddies uh, he might be like hey can i try it out instead of being like dad you're a nerd i'm gonna go hang out with my friends <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's always that fear. You always got to be afraid of, uh, you know, like the same way I looked askance at my dad's love of fishing. Um, and my kid, you know, my kid looks at Dean. You're like, oh, that's a, that's a dad thing. Yeah, that's what dad likes. <laughs> we're, we're dad gamers for sure. My wife yeah. said, "Don't get your hopes up, okay? I don't want you to, your heart to be broken." And I know my heart's already broken thinking about it. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, I, I have to imagine that in the uh, the pie chart of why uh, an average gamer gets has a kid, there is that. So I have someone to play and share my love and role play games with. Oh my god! So, yes. Yeah. I mean, the best thing he could say is, "Hey, could you run a game for me and my friends?" I mean, the kind of prep I would go through just to make yeah. it perfect. Yeah, for me, it's the first time. Like my my oldest son's like you know wants to game master me in a game um that would be that's that's what i'm really looking forward to oh and it's cyberpunk cool isn't that isn't that awesome yeah that's funny um wow you got me thinking nostalgia now just thinking about uh (laughs) all that so what do you think uh let's go let's shift gears i think we talked enough about cyberpunk and let's talk a little bit more about cyberpunk but in a GM's perspective. But you know what? For actually, first of all, I got a question here from our Discord from Crytex Effect. He wanted to ask you if you've seen your art being used for inspiration for uh, Cyberpunk 2077, and how do you feel about the artistic choices they've made with um, with 2077? Um, yeah, I I haven't dug too deep. Um, the only reference to something that uh, that I created was a reference to a cop character, Matthias Maddox, uh, who's uh, mentioned in, I think, the first Interface magazine. And in just a brief shot um, from the 2077 videos, there's a novel or a book about uh, cyber psychos or, or the cyber psycho police force that's written I, you know, officer Matthias Maddox. Mm. Um, but I haven't seen anything else of mine in terms of the artistic style. I think it's great. Like, you know, um, their version of the maelstrom. I mean, when Mike originally described the maelstrom, which is a gang in night city, 
He said they're super cybered out, like a brutish. They like to fight, like physically, um, and use melee weapons. And I drew a guy that kind of looks like a professional wrestler with cyber legs and cyber arms, mm-hmm. and and a weird mullet. Because it was draw, it was drawn in 1990, which was more or less still the 80s, and so it still kind of had that aesthetic. But when you look, the maelstrom. Uh, uh, CD Projekt Red has has envisioned them. To me, that really does look like people who've who've willingly given up their humanity for for cybernetics and Uh cybernetic augmentation. You just look at them, they're inhuman, they're scary looking and and intimidating. Um, And I think there's even the bozos in the game, you know, but they wear like sort of like um, uh, LED screens in front of their faces that display like clownish emotes uh, emotes and stuff like that. And I think that's cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, uh, everything we created at the time, uh, late eighties, early nineties, it was, a you know, it was a, it was a product of its time. And yeah. I just like what CD project red is doing now. Um, I think they're extraordinarily talented and, um, and they've really, just created some really amazing stuff and I just can't wait to uh to play that game. I, I was know. a huge Witcher 3 fan. I know I can't imagine you're in game design too so you know what it's like to be doing what they're doing. So you probably have way better insight and in, into that world than I do. I can't imagine how uh, excited you'd be to see something like that happen. Yeah, I'm working on a pretty big game right now. Probably not as big as um as uh, Witcher or Cyberpunk, but um, I mean, what game is bigger uh, than Cyberpunk? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, and uh, so yeah, it's it's. I know that. Well, you know, just being in video game development as long as I have, I know I know the, the challenges involved, and so understand what a triumph something like getting something like Witcher Three or Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven the market uh, is. Um, yeah, personally, I feel like I'm the guy that's just like grin on his face, just jazzed to be here, you know, because it's like <laughs> uh, it's, sure. it's, it's happening. It's like, oh, my God, it's yeah. happening. The game that everyone's like, what's cyberpunk? Now we're going to play d and I don't know what that game yeah. is. And now it's like front yeah. and center. <laughs> uh, dude, I mean, the, when I saw that the announcement, the very first announcement that CD Projekt Red of all, of all development studios, I was doing it. Um, I, I practically fell out of my chair and I, I just squeed like the craziest little geeky fanboy that you wouldn't believe. Yeah, if for me, what it did, it was, it was the genesis of this whole content creating thing because I immediately went online I, and I got all my books together and I called my buddy and I said, dude, Cyberpunk's on the menu again. We're going to play Cyberpunk. Yeah. I'm going to run a game. We're going to get a bunch of people to play this. It's happening again. And then I went on YouTube and it was like four videos total on like cyberpunk. And, uh-huh. and there's nothing about like what breaking down what a solo is or a media or a net runner or what night city is. And I was like, Oh man, I need a refresher. And, and, and yeah. YouTube is how I do it. So I said, you know what? I'm going to be the guy because That's this, great. this game deserves that kind of care and, and love for it. And and uh, I decided that I'm going to make sure that if anybody else wants to hop on this train, that I'm going to support them and help them because I want this whole thing to grow 
in a positive way. So that's basically that's a, I squealed in that sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the guys at CD Projekt Red apparently chose Cyberpunk because it was a RPG that they collectively loved, and um, uh, I, I speak and- from personal experience. If you're a game developer who loves what you're working on, it, it comes out, it shows, and uh, which just makes me more even more excited. It's wild to think that Mike almost didn't translate it into Polish because he said, "Who's gonna, who's gonna read it? Who's gonna buy it in Poland? Who's gonna play this?" In right? Poland? And he said, "Fine, it's the, whatever." It's those choices, you know. The, it's the it's the seemingly innocuous choice, Mike. You have no no idea uh, what it's gonna lead to. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So let's uh, let's shift gears here. I want to do two fun things. Um, this is a new segment that I'm doing with my guests. You're my second guest ever, by the way. So ah, cool. So this whole guest having thing is new to me, and I'm I'm honored to have you as one of my first oh, few guests. So I oh. think that because you have so much experience with uh, running games, writing games, and designing games. That your words of wisdom is what I'm calling this segment. You know, John, John the Wise, words of wisdom. You got, you know, I'm, uh-huh. I'm learning. Yeah, I see where you're going. You know, <laughs> so uh, let's get some words of wisdom from you for, uh, you know, making games and running games. The first thing I wanted to ask you, because selfishly I want to know this too, is how do you go about rewarding your players with the things that they want? So, for example, one of my players, he's been asking for a grenade launcher for for his character. And I can't just give him a grenade launcher because it's, it's ridiculous, right? So I got to figure out a way how I'm going to make him work for it. And at the same time, make it so it's not... He, I didn't just give him a, a nuclear weapon, you know what I mean? So what do you think the best way is to reward your players to make them happy and to balance the game? Well, you know, uh, you're right in the sense that you just still want to hand it to them. Um, But, you know, uh, root the acquisition of the thing in the setting and the world, make it diegetic, as the saying goes, and that, uh, you know, I would start with what personal contacts the character has. Like, you know, is there a contact they have who may have uh, a connection at Militech or Arasaka? And... Like oh yeah well I got a friend in the R and D tra- R and D team at Militech let me uh, let me check with them and they check with them it's like yeah well we got a we got a grenade launcher that we're testing it's a prototype we need some field testing uh, would you be willing to sign up for you know to field test this grenade launcher and then suddenly give the player a grenade launcher that's got some weird quirks to it that kind of puts the player on the hook to actually go out and use it and report on its efficacy and um, and turn it and then you know maybe throw in that like one of Militech's competitors wants to steal this prototype and then comes for you. Um, or uh, an alternate way would be like, well, you know, maybe if you go check out the soldier of fortune magazines, there's like, you know, wanted to, wanted ads in the back and you search in there and lo and behold, there's some crazy vet going, I got an old grenade launcher for sale. Mm-hmm. You, and he, but the great old crank lives out in the combat zone. So, Hey, well, you want to go get this uh, grenade launcher? It's in the combat zone. Okay, you go out there. It's messed up. It's a it's a comedy of errors and uh, full of uh, violence and physical comedy. Yeah. And um, you eventually run into that old veteran, and maybe he's cool. Maybe he's a total crank. Maybe he's in the middle of a psychotic episode, 
and um, you and starts using that grenade launcher on you and um, and do it that way. Uh, you know, it's the simple re the simple you know simplest thing is though like yeah, there's the shiny new Arasaka, you know, grenade of grenade max 4000 it's all shiny and everything <laughs> uh, it and needs like, to have like that? some kind of samurai name or, or yeah. like the katana or something or... right yeah the, the you know the sakura yeah. uh, and uh the cherry uh, blossom so you so you better get out there and sell your ass if you want that money yeah. and and then maybe set it up as a series of weird odd jobs as a player like to get the money i like the buy it i like that first idea you had where like they give him a prototype i like the idea where mm -hmm. they give him something and tell him to field test it and then it's like plastered <laughs> all over the news that this guy with a grenade launcher with a militech grenade launcher is like is like blowing up buildings and then now they have to <laughs> cut ties with him and send a solo squad to him to you know get uh -huh. get the thing back I love that idea. Yeah. <laughs> or like the media that happens to work for Militech goes to the player and goes, hey, we want to get some good footage. So if you were to test this in a public area, you know, oh, man. get a good crowd reaction going, we can really build up some hype around our new grenade launcher, you know. They're the worst. Uh, the medias are the worst. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> all right, cool. I like that. Um, all right, so let's do uh, let's do a simple plot generator that I have with my ultimate cyberpunk GM guide, which uh, patent pending. Um, I've rolled on this chart, and okay. this so just to give you background on what this chart is, I used to do this thing called cyberpunk on the spot, and it was basically a completely impro improvised game of cyberpunk. I would tell hey. people like, here's my guidelines for a character creation. You can make your character, you can do whatever you want for your background and your life path and your allies. That's all in your pocket and bring it to the table and we can just use it in, in my game. And this way Neat. I could get as many people online that wanted to just try out the game to play. And I, I got like, you know, 20 different people to play the game. So, so what I did was I realized like, okay, it can't be completely improv improvised or else it could be a complete shit show. So uh -huh. I decided to make my own like chart of, I, I roll on it and it gives me an idea of a plot line, right? Okay. So right. I've rolled and so far we, we have uh, s the players must steal an item or goods mm -hmm. from an average citizen or street scum. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Wait, is that how I did it? Okay, so an average citizen or street scum has asked the players to steal an item. And they have to steal it from a police station. And the item is a piece of cyberware. Okay. And here are the plot complications. Uh, the street scum... The okay, no, it's the other way around. The sorry, I haven't looked at this chart in a while. <laughs> right. Let me go Take back. Let me go back. So the care the players have to steal an item from an average street scum who is at a police station, and he has a piece of cyberware. Okay, so they need to get it from the street scum. 
that person who is a street scum is actually hunting the players. So they're going to steal something from that person, but that person was has been hunting them all along. And their attitude towards the players is they used to be a professional ally. Okay. And location complications. The police station is heavily fenced. And what the players don't know is the item's value and condition is it is broken or in pieces. So the players have to steal a piece of cyberware from somebody who's in a police station. He doesn't have to be in jail, but he's in the police station. And that person's actually an old, uh, uh, an ally, professional ally that they used to work with and is now hunting them. And the place, it's a police station, it's heavily fenced, and the, the cyberware is broken and in pieces. Now, how are we going to put this all together and make it like a cohesive story? It already ex- has some kind of framework of a story, right? <clears throat> so what do you think so far, just uh, off top of your head? So this, this uh, uh, former professional contact is an edge runner, an operator, much like themselves. Um, they, uh, uh, essentially, uh, this person acted as a go-between, uh, for the players and a corporate contact who offered them a number of clandestine black, uh, book gigs over the course of a couple months. One of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the members was who possessed a, uh, cyber optic that had a, a rather sophisticated sensor suite and information gathering technology mm. uh, died from a headshot when the uh, uh, mission they were on went south. And it was later revealed to the players that this professional contact had in essence been turning the party members into unsuspecting patsies and fall guys uh, to an essentially pin a series of, of corporate espionage uh, crimes on them to deflect per, uh, 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 deflect suspicion away from this person and uh, the corporation that they actually happen to work for. Players are trying to track this down because this, this contact is a possession of the broken cyber optic that contains essentially all the sensory data from every mission they've ever done that could both exonerate them but also be used against them if this contact gets the opportunity to essentially weaponize the information it contains. They're currently meeting a corrupt police officer who is that uh, person's contact who can, in essence, set up the, uh, uh, the con- essentially providing the connections needed to extract the information uh, from uh, the party members uh, friends uh cyber optic oh so there's so a there's a time factor yeah. there the, the if they don't get there quickly and get into a and breach a police station of all places then mm. all their seek dirty little secrets will get out there yeah and uh they need to get it back uh and they could do uh they could do it a number of ways they could um uh uh, may they may maybe one of the players has a cop contact that works in that precinct building. 
Um, maybe uh, the information that uh, the cyber optic contains uh, will be extracted, but needs to be transmitted. And maybe that transmission can be intercepted. Um, maybe a rocker, rocker boy in the party and set up an impromptu guerrilla concert in front of the station, which essentially attracts all the attention in the station. And now it's basically draws all the cops out of the building. Mm-hmm. Um, things to that effect. Um, so those are, um, or they could just like, you know, the tech or net runner could slave an AV4 and remote pilot it into the side of the building to explode and create a breach and chaos and then rush in that way. Ooh, that's fun. I love it. See, this thing works. <laughs> huh? It works, man, this chart. <laughs> Pretty cool. I like that. Yeah. Do you want to try another one? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, let's do another one. All right. Uh, okay, so the players must kill a government official in the net with and uh they will be given uh or sorry yeah in the net and they will be paid for it and plot complications they're pretty much on their own they're not going to have any support from anybody they have to try to figure out how to do it on their own they're not going to have a resident net runner with them hopefully they have a net runner in the party because if they don't they got to try to figure it out and the Government officials' attitude towards them considers them business partners. So they they used to work with this person. And uh, location complication, well, it's in the net, so none of this matters. And uh, the condition of... Uh, no, this doesn't matter either. So yeah, that's it. So the story is... That there is a government official, they have to kill them some, kill this government official somehow, while they are in the net, and the the government official used to work with this person. You were a business partner, not even just an ally. I mean, you guys were in business together. So where, how do you think this all even came about? Hmm. Well. Uh. It's a tough one Clearly, because because well, they, I mean, the, the know, government uh, official has to be in the net is a little bit tough. Well, I mean, uh, uh, so I can imagine it, uh, that uh, this government official you went into you became a business partner with this government official, possibly under duress, in the sense that maybe this government official was sort of like, um, um, yeah, I know the thing you need to know to make your business work because I got the government contracts and you're making me a silent partner or I'm just going to screw you royally. And um, so that builds in some, some motivation for the player. Hmm. And it also means that they want to try to maybe like this, make this death look like an accident because if uh, this this um, contentious business partner becomes uh, shows up dead and you know there might be some suspicion cast upon those people in the uh, in his circle like the players uh as a game master i would probably set up a couple of opportunities where this guy goes in the net as part of his work or part of his pastime probably a more interesting thing would be to be that he frequents some kind of online dark um, web some kind or, of thing or, or yeah or like you know some online uh weird sex uh virtual sex like bordello thing and um 
you you in essence uh either somehow slip some uh some black programming into uh, some black ice in release into uh 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 to whatever sort of erotic program he's got running or um maybe you have the the techie uh go to his apartment building and uh set up a nice power surge to be triggered by his virtual suit that when he uh reaches the moment of climax and the power is being routed to the suit to generate it it actually generates a fatal char- uh, power surge that fries the guy Ah, yeah. And you're right about having it to make it look like an accident because they're on their Mm -hmm. own. So that's consistent with like, hey, I can't be tied to this at all. And it needs to Mm -hmm. be done. And they would have to have some kind of motivation to want to kill a business partner of theirs. So that means that this person has screwed them over in the past anyway. Or he's just, you know, he's trying to kind of dangling threat of screwing them over in the future over their heads to get them to, to do things the way he likes them or she likes them done. Uh, and, and yeah, that's why and you have to make it look like an accident. Cause if your business partner shows up dead, that tends to benefit you. And so the authorities might, might look at you first as the likely culprit. Ooh, I like the idea also that if this uh, government official likes to frequent some uh, salacious parts of the net, that they go to a part in a place in downtown where they go with like a, a a bodyguard group with them that you know he's like hey i'm going in the net so you guys protect my my meat body while i'm doing the things that i want to do and uh, the players that's like the obstacle that the players have to go through is have to deal with these goons in in a in some sort of fashion that it doesn't look too obvious that they're they're hitting the guy you know yeah yeah, yeah, or if you wanted to play the long game and you've got a really creative team that, like, you know, there's like one net runner, skilled net runner in the party, and you, who in essence creates a uh, some kind of uh, erotic server that caters specifically to this guy, these guy, this guy's tastes that you know will, will be sure to draw him in into your your like your little your little virtual trap and then kill him that way. Yeah, I like that. I had one of my uh one of the plots for my Cyberpunk on the spot game was they had to go into the net of uh the, a net architecture of a building to extract the uh, data from from some kind of vaccine that was just going to be sold as like company secrets, right? Mm-hmm. And I I was like, "Okay, that's the plot." And then I looked at my available players and it was three solos and a nomad. <laughs> so I was like, okay, either I change the plot or I try to make it work and see it as a challenge, you know. And I pretty much told yeah. them like, hey, this is we're gonna, you guys got to try to figure it out. All right, you want to get paid or not, right? <laughs> uh-huh. Right. <laughs> so they basically ended up hire the buying a uh, a virus that they would just plug and play, and and frying the server like like they broke in they like ninja flipped over the fence because they're three solos nice. the nomad acted like a delivery guy and totally distracted everybody and then the three solos ninja flipped over into the on the roof got roof access got in put in the the uh the virus and they left and what they didn't know is the virus just killed everything so like all these groundbreaking vaccines that were gonna like save the world and help people they destroyed everything (laughs) 
in in the wake of them trying to destroy the one thing. <laughs> so yeah. that's that's always that, fun. That's uh yeah, that's what happens. But that's also sparked a whole uh, biotechnicas coming after you now plot line because uh-huh. now you blew up one of their labs and uh and did all the things that you did so now they're looking for you and that like set off in like a branching path yeah and the sad thing that uh, uh if biotechnica comes for you that might take the shape of a tailored virus they smeared on your doorknob that kills you in 30 seconds and is untraceable oh yeah it was bad because the way i introduced it was i just gave him a different mission i said yeah you got to go rescue rescue these people that were kidnapped uh by some bad guys whatever Mm -hmm. and then in the middle of them doing this operation a bunch of biotechnica goons just showed up and started killing everybody and and looking for the players so it's like they interrupted (laughs) our campaign to and i wanted to give them the sense of like dude you guys are being hunted and it's now and it's happening yeah you know all right well that's it that was fun i like doing stuff like that (laughs) that was yeah that was great i i seriously i knew you would like to do it because of course with your background and everything you've done i just didn't know if uh first of all you got a talent man because you were thanks you were on top of it i gave you an idea and you just ran with it so (laughs) that was Uh, awesome like uh uh like I'm a I'm I'm a I'm a sponge for I, I always say like you know I've got a, a brain like an iron sponge just like sucks in stuff and that it goes into my idea salad bar and that way when when I need to come up with plots or something he's like yeah it's like yeah it's a little bit of that a little bit of that and toss it together yeah exactly. I'm exactly the same way. The buddy that got me into cyberpunk, I mean, we would literally just sit down, drink beers, and do this all day. Just talk about... We would even, like, roll random characters and then say, what's this guy's story? Looking at his life path, Mm -hmm. looking at his skills and everything, what's his story? So, yeah, we would do the same thing. It's a lot of fun. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being a part of this, man. Seriously, I'll have you on again because uh, I don't think this yeah, is the too. last time we're going to be talking to each other about cyberpunk. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this is great. especially, you know, now I got to champion the whole Interface Magazine reprinting. Now it's my responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> you have your mission. I do. And I know what I must do. So, um, before we go, uh, I know that it's awkward to try to plug and, and figure out, you know, go to this and my social media and stuff like that. But is there anything you want to, you know, focus people's attention to with the, your current work or anything that you're doing right now? Um, well, I, I'm not really authorized to talk about too much that I'm working on uh, at 2K. But if you do a search for Cloud Chamber, that's the studio that, uh, that I'm currently working at. Uh, you can see pretty quickly uh, the game I'm I'm currently working on, um, and uh, uh, I don't ne- have much going on. I mean, uh, I had a, a tabletop RPG, The Secret of Zeron, which was like a uh, kind of a pulp era fantasy setting, and I'm working on the second edition for that. Um, that's uh, the Secret of Z- Ziran, Z-I-R, apostrophe A-N. The game was written in the early 90s when apostrophes were, were all, the, all the rage. I see and, um, The future uh, of fantasy. 
Yeah, because it was the basic premise was, you know, I would read fantasy novels and it would be like, you know, uh, 5,000 years ago in the kingdom of whatsy whats and the wizards and the dragons. And now today in the kingdom of whatsy whats and there's a wizard and a dragon. I'm like, seriously, 5,000 years and nothing changed in this fantasy setting. So I just kind of, my friends and I were big Call of Cthulhu players and we loved mm-hmm. the globe trotting pulp aspect of that. And we loved fantasy. And so uh, this originally started as a Hayao Miyazaki campaign setting based in uh, the, the world of Nashka, the Valley of the Wind. And, but I kind of expanded it from there and, and turned it into this sort of like uh, Call of Cthulhu-esque fantasy setting. And, and uh, people liked the, the world, but a printing error kind of screwed us and uh, limited our sales. But uh, uh, working on the second edition for that, um, getting my website, hakakon.com, uh, up and going. It'll probably initially just be a, a big repository for a lot of my art. Um, through the years and uh and um if i could plug anything it would be check out mystic tabletop which is a, a an online uh game that's going on uh, that you can watch uh it's fun uh, run by very talented people and uh and then also check out all the work that uh my good friend thaddeus house is making on um evan storm media and um and uh, the uh, Ask Me guy on Quora. Uh, so go check him out. Uh, and uh, yeah, I don't know. That's, 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 those are my plugs. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm looking at the Secret of Zeron core game book. It's on Drive-Thru RPG right now from Paragon Games, which is your publishing company. It was, yeah. 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 <laughs> Back in the day. Well, it's here available if you guys want to take a look at it. The cover art is beautiful. I mean, that's just so nice looking. I love that. Yeah. Corey Allemeyer, great artist. Yeah. And um uh yeah, actually the printing error that that hampered uh our printed version is not pres- present in the PDF version. Oh, okay. Uh, so you can download that and uh that's a, a clean read. It's a shame that a printing error really messed things up. Yeah, all I got to say is don't don't be cute with your text. Don't try to put a little obscure hidden text behind the main text because unprinting error can make a whole page illegible. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, I wish you luck in everything that you do, Chris, and I seriously... Thank you. I really appreciate you coming on and talking cyberpunk with me. And oh, my you're, pleasure. You're an inspiration, man, and you've influenced oh, me f- uh, throughout the years with all the things that you've done. So uh, it, it's been, it's an honor to actually talk to you about all this stuff, man. Well, thanks. It's the most an artist can really ever hope for. Yeah, man. And when Cyberpunk Red comes out, I'd love to play with you if you if you d- want to be a player. Oh yeah, man. I hardly get to play at all. That's I was, why I'm like, offering, because, you know... You're... Cranial Game Master. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I, I All my players are Game Masters. That's I give them all a chance. I'm, the, I'm that guy. Actually, you do this series called, like, the GM Vacation or something like that. Yeah, something like that. That's a great idea, actually. Stealing it. All right. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, we'll see you next time, and hopefully we have some more awesome guests like we had today. All right? This, the bar is set high, Chris. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're too kind. All right, guys. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye.